Good morning, I'm Pastor Jay, and I would like to invite you, let's open our Bibles to the New Testament, a letter that Paul wrote, the Apostle Paul, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. This is the time in our service where we open God's Word. I grew up in a church denomination in California where there was not a lot of emphasis put on preaching from the scriptures. And it's so easy to become a product of our culture and our parents and our pasts and our circumstances and our school systems and our social media that it's very easy to get all sorts of false ideas embedded in our mind and we get stuck on them. And as we well know, ideas have consequences in our lives. And so hence the great value every week of going to the scriptures, opening them up, and seeing what God has to say, and praying that he will give us ears to hear and to welcome what is said. Because as you know, not everyone who hears preaching likes it. Preaching does one of two things, it never leaves somebody neutral. Anytime the word of God is preached, you see this in the Bible, church history, or even today, one of two things happens. The person either moves closer to God or they move further away from God. And that's by divine design. Jesus told us that in his preaching, quoting Isaiah 6. Truth never leaves anybody neutral. And so our prayer this morning is that God would open our hearts, our minds, our eyes to welcome what his word says. This is a great passage. 1 Corinthians 15. We're in a series. We're almost to the end. In this letter, wise words to a hurting church. And this morning as we come near the end, we come to a chapter in which the Apostle Paul is addressing the coming resurrection of the dead, of all the dead, and the afterlife. And it's a topic in which there's a lot of interest and a lot of confusion. Hence, even more so why we need to go to the Scriptures. A couple years ago, uh, the New Age guru, Deepak Chopra, best-selling author whose book sales, I was looking this week online, have now topped over 20 million had this to say, and Deepak is a Hindu, you need to know that, he's a medical doctor, he lives here in the West, but he's a Hindu. He had this to say about his view of what happens in the next life. The question was, what do you believe will happen the moment you die? He says, I think I will enter the realm of pure consciousness. Question, so do, you ha- so do, we, do we have a choice about coming back to a human life? He said, yes, right. The last question. There's a poem by Billy Collins that says, everyone gets the afterlife they believe in. And Chopra said, yeah, I totally believe that. Now, tragically, his words are at direct odds with the Bible. Number one, it's linguistic and logical and theological nonsense to believe that everyone gets the afterlife that they believe in because everyone has lots of different beliefs. But you wonder, as you read somebody like Deepak Chopra, how they would handle verses like 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. Or 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert, your enemy the devil stalks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Which brings us this morning to this great chapter, chapter 15. This is Paul's most extensive section 
in his letters dealing with the afterlife and especially the resurrection of the body and what lies beyond the grave. That's why it's such a great section. This chapter is filled with warning and hope. Warning and hope. And specifically in regard to the resurrection of the dead and our future bodies. So it pretty easily divides into three parts. In fact, your English translations probably show you this, but some texts are a little harder to see the different sections. This one easily, Paul is first discussing the resurrection of Jesus, and he's doing that to show us that bodies are resurrected from the dead, and Jesus was the first one. Then he's going to talk about the resurrection of the dead in general. Every single human being who's ever lived will be resurrected bodily from the dead the righteous and the wicked. And then he's going to talk specifically about our resurrection bodies, what they will look like, and questions coming about the specific nature of our resurrection bodies. So from the front row to the balcony, to the wings, this is good stuff. Let's hear what God has to say. First of all, resurrection of Jesus. Now, unlike most of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15 is devoted to one doctrine, a single doctrine. Both the resurrection of Jesus and the coming general resurrection of everyone who's ever lived, both the saved and the unsaved, either to eternal life or eternal damnation. You may say, well, I'm not sure I believe that. Well, that's, I'm not here to tell you what I believe. I'm not here to tell you what this church believes. I'm here to tell you what the scriptures declare. That's what we say is we always go back and say, well, what's, what's the text say? And Paul begins by talking about the general resurrection. That's his topic. But he begins by talking about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So I'm going to read the first eight verses. And I want you to notice specifically verse 3 where he is quoting, this is kind of code phrase for oral tradition that has come to him. That is what's first importance, that which I received. So verse 3 is going to be key, but let me start in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. And Paul was always very clear, let me add, there is a true gospel and there are many false gospels. He wants to keep camping on there's what the true gospel is. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. So it is possible to believe in vain. For what I received... I have passed on to you as of, what's the next couple words? First importance. So there are, there's a triage of doctrines in the Bible. Certain things you have to believe to be saved. Other things you don't have to believe to be saved. You don't have to have the correct view of eschatology or of the sacraments in order to be saved. Have the wrong view of who Jesus is. He's very clear in John 8. You could jeopardize your eternal destiny. So, what I, I passed on to you what I considered, a, or what I passed on to you what is of first importance, and what is it? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Cephas is Peter. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the time, most of whom are still living. In other words, you can go talk to them. Some of them have fallen asleep. That was a euphemism. They've died. They've gone on. Then he appeared to James, to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. But again, notice verse 3. This is of first importance. Christ died. He was buried. 
he was raised. That, ladies and gentlemen, that boys and girls, that young people, that is the gospel. And Jesus taught that his own resurrection from the dead was at the heart of the gospel. He says in Mark 8.31, talking to his disciples, referring to himself in the third person, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. This was constantly on the forefront of his teaching. Or in John 11, in fact, I saw these words on a tombstone this week. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even though he dies. In fact, if you look at the first couple sermons in Acts right after Pentecost, both focused on the resurrection of Christ. So let us be clear. Whether we're new to the Bible, whether we've been a believer for a long time, whether we're a skeptic about the Bible, at least let's be honest, the New Testament affirms that Jesus rose from the dead and it affirms the literal bodily resurrection of the dead and says that the Christian faith hinges on this doctrine. John Locke, the great British philosopher in the 18th century, put it this way. He said, our Savior's resurrection is truly of great importance in Christianity, so great that his being or not being the Messiah clearly stands or falls with it. And so because the resurrection, friends, is the cornerstone of the belief in the New Testament, it is the target of Satan and his demons in a way that no other doctrine is. And why? Because if you eliminate the bodily resurrection of the dead, you're left with simply a moral system. And the Christian gospel is a sham. And in case you have any doubt, look at what Paul says in verse 14 and verse 19. In a day when liberal clergy are so quickly to, quick to throw out the resurrection or, or spiritualize it, Paul never did that. He was very clear. If you get rid of the, bodily resurre- the literal space-time bodily resurrection of Jesus, you have gutted and destroyed the foundation of Christianity. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Or verse 19, if only in this life we have hope, and in Christ we of all people are most to be pitied. So very evident, resurrection is at the core. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, some of you know the verse, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the shortest confession of what is required theologically to be saved. He didn't say you have to have the right view of the millennium, the right view of the Lord's Supper, but he did say, You have to believe Jesus is Lord, and you have to believe that God raised him from the dead. That's how you're saved. So it's not possible, therefore, to be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Having said all of that, the doctrinal problem that the Corinthians were facing was not so much a doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. Paul's using this as an example to go into his main discussion here, which is somehow they, in their twisted thinking, They seem to affirm that Jesus rose from the dead, but then they were doubting whether there would be a general resurrection from the dead. And so there was great confusion about whether all would be resurrected from the dead. And so that takes us into verses 12 to 34. 
while many affirmed Jesus' resurrection, somehow they doubted and they, they didn't connect the two. In other words, the two resurrections, according to Paul, Jesus's and ours, stand or fall together. You can't have one without the other. Furthermore, if there's no resurrection of the body or of our bodies, Paul says the gospel is useless. Now, one of the reasons the church was so, you say, well, why was the church so confused about this? Well, number one, you have to remember where this church was planted and where it was started. It started in Greece, southern Greece, <clears throat> so it's firmly embedded in Greco-Roman culture. And as N.T. Wright reminds us, who's a very prolific New Testament scholar, he says the concept of a body coming back from the dead, of a resurrected corpse, <clears throat> almost unheard of in Greco-Roman culture, in Greece and in Rome. There was no concept, he says, as he surveys the landscape in his magisterial book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. N.T. Wright says, virtually all of Greco-Roman culture was dominated either by Homer's view of the afterlife, which was kind of a gloomy view of the ongoing existence of the soul in a place called Sheol, or not only of Homer, but or of Plato's view of the afterlife, which was a little more optimistic, but ongoing belief that the soul exists and is reincarnated in other lives. Those are the two dominant views. Neither of them included a resurrected body. And so Wright, N.T. Wright says, the idea that a corpse could be resurrected, a physical body, was virtually unheard of, and yet this was the core of the Christian faith. And that's why Paul drills down here, starting in verse 12, talking about the general resurrection of the dead. This is his main point in this passage. If it is preached that Christ has not been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? So if Christ has been raised, how can some of you say then, well, then there's no other resurrection? You see, Paul's linking the two. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, verse 14, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But if He did not, in fact, raise Him from the dead, then the dead are not raised. In other words, we won't be raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You say, well, what, what were some of the common misconceptions of the afterlife? It's interesting over the ages, as you look at history, they don't change much. But let me give you the four most common misconceptions of the afterlife in Paul's day, and they're pretty much the same misconceptions in our own day. You might even hold one of these. Misconception number one is that there's no afterlife. And it's, not, it's, it's a little surprising. Not only do atheists generally hold this, this would be the view of prominent chipper folks like Richard Dawkins, who's one of the grumpiest atheists around, or more happy atheists like Sam Harris or Christopher Hitchens. But it's also a view of a lot of liberal clergy. You would be shocked if you could talk to liberal clergy behind the scenes. How many don't believe in an afterlife? I remember listening to a pastor. I was in college in Grand Rapids, Michigan, 
and there was a large liberal church downtown, Fountain Street Church, and the pastor of Fountain Street Church, Dr. Duncan Littlefair, had done his PhD at the University of Chicago, and he'd been there for decades. And every once in a while, when I was in my undergrad in Grand Rapids, I would just drop in with some friends, and we'd listen to him, uh, it wasn't really preach, but give his talk. It was in a large cathedral. But I remember him explicitly giving message where he denied any afterlife. No afterlife. None. As far as I could tell, he was an atheist as he opened up and preached or gave his talk every week to probably four to five hundred people. So that's, the most, that's one of the most common beliefs, even today. Second one is universalism, which is what? That all religions lead to God. This also is extremely popular. It was back then, is today. This is the view of Oprah Winfrey and all of her friends who believe that all religions, no matter how harmful they may be or how different they may be from one another or how much they contradict each other, somehow all lead to God, whatever God may be in their view. Usually it's an impersonal, pantheistic view of who God is. This is also the official view of the Unitarian Church. On their website, this is what they say. We believe that religious wisdom is ever-changing. Human understanding of life and death is never final. Except on their website, it's final. Because they have a very specific view of human life and death that never changes on their website. We celebrate unfolding truths known to teachers, prophets, and sages through the ages, except for Jesus. <laughs> they didn't add the last part, but I do, because that is exactly what they're saying. So no afterlife, that was a very common view. And this was the view of the Sadducees, by the way, who did not believe in an afterlife. Then universalism, that's the second common misconception, that all religions somehow lead to God, which doesn't even make sense logically. I like Diana Eck's quote from Diana Eck uh, from Harvard Divinity School, who's not a believer, she's a very liberal theologian. But she said, to know one religion is not to know any religion because they are so different. And she says, anybody who says all religions say the same thing doesn't know the world's religions. They are massively at odds with each other. Third misconception of the afterlife, and this is probably the most popular one in world history, and that is that there is a soul, but only the soul lives on forever. We call this the immortality of the soul, and this has been the view of most Asian religions. This would be the view of Buddhism and Hinduism, although they add reincarnation. This would be the view of a lot of tribal religions, a lot of uh, Native American religions, and it, was con and it was probably the view of most of the Corinthian Christians or the people that attended this church from the culture they came out of. This was the dominant view in ancient Greece, that there was an invisible part of us, a soul or a spirit. That's the only part that would live on, not the physical body. So, no afterlife or universalism, all religions lead to God, or only the soul lives on, immortality of the soul. And then the other most popular or most dominant afterlife view is reincarnation, which is a version of immortality of the soul, except the difference is reincarnation teaches the soul will then come back and reincarnate into a new body. The Hindu version is it can come back in any form, an animal. The Western version, we're not so much into transmigration, is it only can come back as another human being. So what's the Bible teach? 
That's the big question. Because these views are out there. They've been out there for thousands of years. And they confuse people. They confuse people sitting in Bible teaching churches. And so it becomes very important. What does the scripture say? And here the Bible is very clear. Every single person who's ever lived, no matter how righteous or how wicked, the Bible says will be resurrected from the dead someday for judgment, both the saved and the unsaved. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. That's Isaiah 26, 19. Daniel 12, 2. One day multitudes will awake from the dust, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt. I want you to turn with me for just a minute to Acts chapter 24, where Paul makes, I think, the clearest statement, probably in the New Testament, that all will be resurrected bodily. And just a reminder, the word resurrection never goes with soul. It never goes with spirit. The Bible knows nothing of resurrected spirits or resurrected souls. It always is applied to a Greek word, soma, which is the body, this stuff. Resurrection only applies to the body. And Paul, in Acts 24, 14 and 15, he's preaching before Felix, the Roman official, and Paul says in 24, verse 14, However, I admit, I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a cult. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law, that would be the Torah, and that is written in the prophets. So in other words, he just affirmed the whole Hebrew Bible there. I believe everything that's in accordance with the Hebrew Bible. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. And what is that hope? That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. That is historic Judaism. That is historic biblical Christianity. The final judgment where all human beings are resurrected is then described in Revelation 20 where they will then stand before the great throne. If you go to Revelation 20 for a moment, after every human body has been raised from the dead, we're physical forever, whether we're in heaven on the, or on the new earth, or whether we're in hell. You're, we're physical forever. The final judgment of all human beings, once resurrected, then is described in Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. So this passage is now chronologically after the resurrection of every human being. The Apostle John, writing by the inspiration of the Spirit, says this, starting in verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Why are they standing? Because they've been resurrected. They're back, they have their bodies back, like Jesus did. And the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. 
and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I remember as a teenager being terrified, rightly so, by that passage. There is a godly terror that should scare anyone about the coming judgment. What's very exciting, and I'm not going to read it, but the next chapter, chapter 21, is one of the most hope-filled chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21, because it describes a brand new earth that's coming. We often think, here's the problem, Christians often think of the afterlife as invisible and ethereal only. And yet, when you look at the scriptures, it describes a very physical afterlife, very substantial and solid, solid and as substantial as anything we know here. Chapter 21 describes a new earth for those who know Christ. Remember, this earth was paradise, and you're living on paradise that's under a curse. We don't know exactly how extensive the curse is, but you know the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Charles Wesley, far as the curse is found. Curses affected everything on this planet, biologically, socially, spiritually. One day there will be a new heaven and new earth, and the new earth will be a paradise with no curse on it anymore. It will be a spectacular physical world, a place to learn and to worship and to work and to serve. To put it in as concrete terms as I can, it will be you know the Alps and the Himalayas and Maui and the splendors of New Zealand and northern Illinois all wrapped into one. We do have a beautiful area in northern Illinois. A physical world, a beautiful world, where there will be no more tears, no more death, no more pain, and no more sorrow. And that is a hope that a lot of Christians in the West don't dwell on because we're so busy hanging on to this life that we're not looking ahead in hope to the next life. Lastly, Paul deals with Well, what are our resurrection bodies going to look like then? Back to chapter 15. And in verses 35 to 58, he talks about it. And he gives three word pictures of what our resurrection bodies will look like. Notice the question in verse 35. Someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised then? And what kind of body will they have? So he gives three word pictures. The first word picture is seeds in verse 37. A seed is different from what it produces, but it clearly represents what it produces, right? I mean, you plant wheat seeds, you get what? Wheat. Plant an acorn, you get an oak. Plant orange seeds, you get an orange tree. That's Paul's point. The point is that our future bodies will be continuous, just like Jesus' resurrection body was. The second word picture is flesh. Verses 38 and 39. But God gives it a body as he determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animal another, birds another, fish yet another. So Paul uses the Greek word soma, body, physical body in these verses. It's clear that Paul viewed our physical resurrection as a bodily resurrection. You will be raised bodily someday, whether you go to heaven or hell, whether you're on the new earth or in the lake of fire, you will be raised bodily someday. I will be raised bodily someday. The New Testament, again, knows nothing of resurrected spirits. Third word picture is planets. Planets. Verses 40 and 41. 
There are also heavenly bodies, and he's using these as analogies the best he can. There are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of heavenly bodies is one kind, the splendor of earthly bodies is another. Sun has another kind of splendor, the moon another, stars another. Stars differ from star in splendor. In other words, our future bodies will be different from our current ones, but also different from other people's. We will retain our individuality just like Jesus did. Jesus was the first resurrected body. Finally, then Paul gives a series in verses 40 and 41. I just read of contrast between our current bodies and our future bodies. And he does that down in verses 45 down to 49. All right. This is a tremendous section. I would encourage you, if you're parents here and you have kids at home this week, to go home and talk about this section with them. Heaven and the new earth does not get a lot of attention in the evangelical church in the West. It does, I'll tell you where, it does in impoverished areas of the world. But in affluent areas of the world, it's interesting, it doesn't get a whole lot of attention because we are so busy, so fixated on money and possessions and hanging on to what we have in this life and forgetting what lies ahead. And we need that regular reminder. Help your kids get that reminder. All right, three questions this morning about our summons because this text is rich in summons. Number one, obviously the question that begs to be asked is are you ready to meet God? Teenager, are you ready to meet God? Your decision will determine where you spend eternity. Kids, are you ready to meet God? Adults, are you ready to meet God? You may say, well, I'm not sure about, I'm just telling you what the text says. Jesus couldn't have been clear. Paul couldn't have been clear. Peter couldn't have been clear. Our decisions will determine where we spend eternity. There is a new heaven. There is a lake of fire. And our decision will make that difference where we go. Jesus in John chapter 3 told us what has to occur if we're going to be ready to meet God. It's not try harder. It's not just live a good moral life. Jesus said, you must be born again. Spiritual rebirth has to occur if someone's going to be reconciled to God. Jesus said very clear. And the gospel is Jesus came to give his life as an atonement for sin. He was killed. Then he was buried. That's what Paul says. This is of first importance. And then he was resurrected from the dead. But the Bible says knowing those facts doesn't save you because Satan and his demons have very good systematic theology, better than yours, better than mine. Demons and Satan have been around for a long time. They understand the Bible. They know what it teaches intellectually. Why aren't they saved? Because they don't put their trust in it. They hate God. They hate Christ. You can know the truth and reject it. A lot of people sit in Bible teaching churches and intellectually understand the facts of the gospel, but they don't welcome them and they don't surrender to Christ and make him their Lord and Master. The Bible says being born again is the only way to be completely forgiven of my sins. It is the only way to escape hell. It's the only way to be transformed from the inside out. So that's the first question that leaps out of this passage today. Are you ready to meet God? You may say, I've never heard anybody put it that way before. Well, the Bible puts it that way all the time. Puts it that way all the time. Second question. And the last two questions are to those who are convinced 
that they are born again and that they know Christ as Savior. I know not everyone here is saved, not everyone here is born again, but if you are, there are many of you here who know Jesus. The last two questions are for you. If you know Christ, are you preaching the gospel of hope to yourself? And I say that based on verses 51 to 57, where you have a section similar to Romans 8 that is just abounding in hope. And these are the kind of passages we need to write down, memorize, put on our mirror or on our cabinet somewhere where we are trying to digest and internalize them. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 58. Paul says, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, meaning death. We will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Here he's talking about the second coming and the rapture and the gathering of God's elect and what's going to happen in the future. For the trumpet will sound. That's just lifted right out of what Jesus said in Matthew 24. The dead will be raised imperishable, physically raised, and we will be changed. Now listen to these words of hope. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law, but... Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have the same kind of hope-filled passage you have in Romans 8. So if you know Christ, are you preaching gospel hope to yourself? Unless Christ comes back in our lifetime, we all have an appointment with the undertaker. Some of us sooner, some of us later, but we're all going to die unless he returns. And the question is, are you preaching the gospel of hope to yourself or are you so busy hanging on to this life that you're not looking ahead and you're in despair? Third question, last question. If you do know Christ, based on verse 58, are you working hard for reward? 58, last verse. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know your labor in the Lord is what? It's not in vain. It's not in vain. We learned in 1 Corinthians 3 something very important. Every true Christian, this only applies to those who are truly saved, will one day stand before Christ not to be judged for their sins, whether they're saved or unsaved, but every true Christian who's been forgiven and justified, will stand before God and be evaluated based on what they did after salvation, after conversion, after they were born again. How they served Christ. Did they serve Christ? How obedient were they? And we know that blessing and curse is even based on our obedience in this life, but then one day we'll still be evaluated and reward or lack of reward will be handed out in the afterlife. Christians, this is only to true Christians, are called to obey God. You may say, well, he asked me to do some things I'm really uncomfortable with, with my money or my life. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what he says. 
And he says it to me as much as he says it to you. We are called to obey God. Very first command is baptism. To go underwater for Christ. And then he makes demands on our money and our bodies and our sex life and how we use the Sabbath and our attitudes in life and our behavior and how we treat other people and forgive other people. We are called, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Bottom line. Now, let me close with this. It's important to obey sooner than later if you say you know Christ. You say, well, why? Here's why. The longer we delay in obedience in some particular area, the easier it is to keep disobeying. The longer you delay in obedience in some area where you know God has spoken, the easier it is to keep disobeying. And the longer you keep disobeying, the more we remove ourselves from God's blessing on our lives and on our prayers. If we knowingly are disobeying, we can't expect God to be answering our prayer. Except with no. Hebrews 3.15 says this way. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. There's a lot on the line when it comes to obedience in the Christian life. We're going into a baptism. We're going to have several baptisms. One in the first service. We've got three coming in the next service. These are people who are saying, I'm getting serious about the very first issue of obedience in my life. And that is going public for Jesus. We love our baptism services. So I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to sing a song, and then those getting baptized, both, both services, uh, we have time to greatly celebrate with them. If you want to come back at the end of the second service, we have three more. These are some of our best times of the year when you hear from the water live stories of people who are stepping out in obedience to Christ. Father, we do thank you for Paul and that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write his 13 letters and that you put them in our New Testament. We thank you that they make us uncomfortable and yet we thank you they're filled with hope. Father, teach us. Help us to be an obedient church. Help me to be an obedient pastor. Help our leaders to be obedient. Help our people to be obedient. And we pray for this year. We pray for more conversions, more baptisms. We pray the gospel light would continue to go out. We thank you for other Bible teaching churches in our area that are faithfully proclaiming the gospel. May together we continue to pierce the darkness with the light of Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.